spirit and truth. The Lord has brought us to John chapter 4. And these five verses right here, John 4, 20 through 24, an exchange between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. True worship, as Jesus called it in those verses, is important to God or it isn't. If it is, let's identify truth and hold it fast. If true worship doesn't matter, let's split the general fund up and go to New Spring. It's really that simple. It's really simpler than that. Or do we go to Brookwood? Or St. Mary's downtown? Because if you don't think we have the truth, then St. Mary's is as good as Brookwood or New Spring. Because on what basis are you deciding that New Spring is better than St. Mary's? Right. Or the Hindu temple near Dave and Jody's? Or let's just forget it all and be season ticket holders of the Carolina Panthers. It's all based on this. Is true worship important to God or not? Right. And Jesus said it was to the woman of Samaria, and he said, you Samaritans are ignorant, you don't know what you're worshiping, and the Jews know what they're worshiping, but their worship is going away as well. And so we want to learn those verses. Our fathers, this is the woman speaking to Jesus, I know this is the third time. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, in Samaria. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Our fathers and ye. Each nation had their own religious tradition. The Samaritans thought they were right. The Jews thought they were right. Should they agree to disagree? Are there two ways to God? Not a chance. There's only one way. Either only one of them was right or both of them were wrong. Both couldn't be right. This mountain, she said, is where we worship and our fathers have worshiped for 500 years. Jesus crushed 500 years of their worship. And in Jerusalem, those are places. Is it Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans or is it Mount Zion of the Jews? Both were soon to be replaced by new worship. I hope that every one of you, even right down to some of our children, could explain John 4, 20 through 24, to someone else. We just covered John 4.20 for the third time. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. A change in religion is coming. And he uses the future tense, the hour cometh. The hour cometh, Jesus used the future tense for the change that was going to be made in the worship of God after 1,500 years since Moses on Mount Sinai. Neither in your mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. He undid the Jews' religion right. to this woman, first of all. He ended 1,500 years of Old Testament worship in Jerusalem telling the woman of Samaria. That's verse 21. How about verse 22? Ye worship, ye know not what. That's not very politically correct, but it's how the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to a woman in private. He just told her, you Samaritans are ignorant. You don't know what you're doing. We know what we worship, and worship should be based on knowledge, for salvation is of the Jews. God only revealed true religion to the Jews. Samaritans are ignorant. Jesus said that to the woman of Samaria. Notice, ye is plural. He's talking to one person. You Samaritans don't know what you're doing. Their man-made religion was 500 years old and sincerely dear to them. So what is what Jesus said? He didn't care because God seeks true worshipers that will worship him in truth. And the Samaritans didn't have any. They were imposters aping the Jews' religion by building a temple on a mountain in Samaria 30 miles north of Jerusalem which was leveled by John Hyrcanus in 129 B.C. So they worshiped toward the holy spot in the times of the woman. God revealed his religion to Israel. And this word right here, remember, in recent weeks I've emphasized to you the, word, the two R's, 
revelation and repentance. God has to reveal things to us or we won't know them, and we need to repent of our thoughts to embrace His. And those two R's make for perfect religion. Knowledge for true worship requires a revelation from God. That means He has to reveal things to us or we wouldn't know. And God did that to Israel, and Israel had it. And Jesus said that to the woman of Samaria, that God had done that for the Jews. Now Jesus goes on and says, The hour cometh, that's from verse 21 as well, future tense, and now is. So the change had already started. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God's looking for a few on earth that will do it the right way, and the right way is spirit and truth. We want to learn those two words tonight even better than I taught them on Sunday. But it was coming in the future, and it was now. It's a 40-year period of time called the time of Reformation from approximately 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. when God leveled the temple in Jerusalem so there was no more Jewish worship and hasn't been. No priesthood, no altar, no holy of holies, nothing since then. But for 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side. And now is, Jesus said. Jesus used the present tense, now is, about this change in religion, since the change had already started. True worshipers, God only accepts. Some worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And that should be very important to us, that we want to worship in spirit and truth. Not by man's definition, but by God's definition. And we want to look at those two words so that we understand these verses well. I can remember 40 years ago having these verses pushed at me for the first time and embracing them and being excited that there's a difference between true worshipers and false worshipers, and God identified through Jesus Christ what true worship was and that it was, it was undoing what was being done in Jerusalem for 1,500 years. The religion Jesus was born in was ending. and He was going to leave this earth and send an apostle named Paul to us to teach us a new way of worshiping. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. These are the five verses of John 4. God is not physical. He's a spirit. He's invisible. He's a ghost. But I don't want to use that word because our children don't understand. He's a spirit. He's the part of a person that lives inside this tent called their body, this tabernacle. Those are Bible words. This house, Bible word. The spirit's inside. God's a spirit. You can't see him. He doesn't have a body. Uh, he's not physical. Therefore, because God is not physical, he's a spirit. Therefore, his worship must be non-physical involving the spirit, our spirit, not the Holy Spirit, our spirit. His worship needs to be internal, one spirit to another spirit, our spirit to him. God is a spirit, a divine, supernatural spirit that demands truth without error, because he is truth. He is true and faithful. There's John 4, 20 through 24. I referred to these verses the last Sunday or two, but I want to show them to you again tonight, and I want to illustrate them. Religious change started with John the Baptist. He's the first one to burst on the scene that wasn't totally dedicated to the Old Testament. He offered something new, dipping, immersion, submersion in the Jordan River for repentance, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah of the Jews. Here's the verse that I've referred to. The law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament. That's a summary phrase for the Old Testament scriptures. The law and the prophets, the law is five books long, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. They didn't completely go away at that time, but now they had a competitor. The law and the prophets were until John. They were the only game in town. They were the only religion by which you worship God. Since that time, since John the Baptist began preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and baptizing people, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. That's the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. And every man presseth into it. Men were pressing into it by repenting of their sins, being baptized, and submitting themselves to the coming Messiah or the present Messiah, 
depending on exactly when they were baptized, that they were going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives. And so there's the religious change, starting with John the Baptist about 30 A.D., ending with the destruction of Jerusalem about 70 A.D., and the two systems running side by side. Here's the other verse. Religious change equals reformation. And this is the reformation we believe in and trust the most because we're not Reformed Catholics. Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, and who did I leave out um, are Reformed Catholics. We're not Reformed Catholics. We're original Christians from the days of the apostles because we were never part of Rome, never shall be. Here's the verse. It's Hebrews 9.10. After listing what the tabernacle of Moses looked like and its compartments and its furniture and some of its ordinances and how a high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood, you know, list that in Hebrews 9.1-9. through 9, It says this, which stood, that old tabernacle, that Old Testament temple, that was right here, which stood only in meats and drinks, that Old Testament form of religion. It was just a bunch of meats and drinks. It was a bunch of different washings and a bunch of carnal ordinances, and it was imposed. Nobody would have wanted to keep those rules by themselves. It was imposed on the Old Testament saints until the time of Reformation. We live on this side of the time of Reformation, so we don't have to keep all those rules that are found in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus dying on the cross and nailing those carnal ordinances to his cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. This is a beautiful verse, and you want to remember it. This is the time of Reformation. We're not looking to Martin Luther nailing 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany on Halloween Day. We're not looking to John Calvin. We're not looking to John Knox. We're not looking to the Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries. We're looking to this Reformation that occurred in 30 to 70 A.D. as religion was changed from Old Testament fleshly physical worship to spiritual worship. What a great verse. Other verses describing the change, John 1.17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What a difference. And so forth. Remember I told you some slides I would go fast on. There's a lot of slides. What is worship in spirit? We want to know more because Jesus said the Father seeks those that will worship him, and he called them true worshipers, meaning there's false worshipers. True worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. It is opposite. Worship in spirit is opposite much of the Old Testament worship in Jerusalem because Old Testament worship in Jerusalem was not spirit. It was physical, ritual, ceremonial. Moses' religion was carnal and physical in a particular place. You had to go to the temple. There was only one holy of holies. There was only one altar. And it was there in Jerusalem at the temple that Solomon built first and then Zerubbabel rebuilt. It had many carnal acts of outward ceremony. New Testament worship is to be of the heart and of the mind. I'll write my laws in their hearts and in their minds. It's just Hebrews chapter 8. The difference in the covenants is great. Instead of Instead of writing the Ten Commandments on a stone with his finger, he writes in our hearts and in our minds. And we don't have to have the kind of rudimentary, repetitive teaching to know God like they did in the Old Testament because we know him from the inside out, because we're taught on the inside. It's just a new religion, and we want to use that inside part to worship God because there's spirit in here. When you die, you're going to be just as much alive in a different way that you haven't experienced yet because your spirit's just going to leave this tabernacle and go to be with the Lord. That's what death is. It's just a movement of the spirit out of the body. And the body without the spirit just ends life. New Testament worship is to be of the heart and of the mind. It is an invisible worship. Without place, we don't have to go to a certain place, or things. So that made it different from the Old Testament form. It replaces outward ritual with internal affection. Instead of just going through outward rituals like the Jews did, we have internal affection, joy, and excitement as we worship God from the inside out. That's what it means to worship in spirit. 
Worship in spirit surely condemned carnal Jewish worship at Jerusalem because that was so external and so much outside and so much physical with things and sights and sounds and smells and tastes. What did Paul call the Old Testament? Beggarly. Carnal, elementary, old, rudimentary, weak, and worldly. That is what Paul called Old Testament worship that was God's form of worship for 1,500 years. Moses started it. God approved it. God blessed it as far as that system of religion could take a man. But then he changed it. And then Paul, our apostle, wrote this way about that form of religion because he gave us one that's much better. Meats and drinks, we read in Hebrews 9 and verse 10, was the Old Testament. The Old Testament told you what you could or could not eat. Think bacon, ham, pepperoni, salami, and sausage. Couldn't have them. There was a terrible potion for women to drink. If a husband came home from a business trip and wanted to make sure his wife hadn't played around on him while he was gone, take her down to the priest and she had to drink a potion that would make her rot starting in her crotch. You can read it in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. Think calamari, lobster, shrimp, oysters, and catfish. Catfish are missing what? Fins, scales, because they have skin. Peter rejected bacon three times when he was hungry on a housetop, didn't he, in Acts chapter 10? Peter, rise, kill and eat. Lord, I, I can't do that. No bacon for this man ever. The New Testament specifically condemns forbidding meats. Isn't that wonderful? We can't have rules against eating meat. We don't like vegetarians. <laughs> if you're trying to be a vegetarian for religious reasons. If you want to be a, a vegetarian for some other retarded reason, we'll think about it. <laughs> but, I mean, there's just... It is a liberty, so forgive me. No one feel intimidated. I'll buy you your first soy burger, and you can eat it with tofu. Um, meats and drinks. Thank you, Lord. This is what Paul picked out to make fun of the Old Testament. All it was was a bunch of meats and drinks, carnal ordinances and washings imposed until God changed that form of worship. Oh, yes. That's the meat lovers, by the way. Was there some of that over there tonight? Thank you, Philip, for the props. Oh, Lord, we're, we're, our joy and happiness and laughter is holy laughter yes. at your goodness toward us on this side of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. and the great change in religion that he explained to the woman of Samaria. Divers' washings, divers' equals different, all kinds of ritual washings. Aaron and the priest had their unique washings. One week out of every month, a woman had so many washings. Oh, and if you got near her, you had to wash. And if you sat in a chair where she sat, oh, you had to wash. It was unbelievable. you got to go read it. Washing included body, clothes, furniture, and so forth and so on. The, the Pharisees didn't think there was enough, so they added more. The New Testament does not care if you wash at all, though we do a little when you come to public assemblies. Thank you, Lord, for the change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Amen. This is how Paul described it. This isn't me picking on the Old Testament. It was Paul from this verse. What is that going to do for God? If I wash a chair, clothes, a bed, a sheet, two times a day for seven days during the month, how does the Lord get worship out of that? He didn't. That was a schoolmaster. That Old Testament system was a schoolmaster to pound us so that we would look forward to Christ. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 3. Carnal ordinances, carnal means bodily, fleshly, physical, material ordinances. Carnal means not spiritual, if you want the real definition of the word carnal. Not spirit worship, get it? See, we need, worship needs to change from not spirit worship to spirit worship. Circumcision, we're talking about carnal ordinances. You know, there had to be minor surgery on the eighth day after birth of every little baby boy. Circumcision was very important. It was a capital crime if you didn't do it. Living in a booth of sticks, you had to build a doghouse out of sticks and live in it for one week out of the year 
because of what you had to go through when you were in Egypt. Thank you, Lord. I like HVAC, shower, and high count, high thread count sheets. Sacrifices galore from headless birds. Have you ever read the verses about having to rip the head off a bird? To scapegoats, led out into the wilderness by a marathon runner. Redeeming your ass by killing a lamb. If you had a female ass and it gave birth to an ass, you would have to kill a lamb to keep the ass because you had to redeem it. So there was death and blood and mayhem and carnal ordinances. It's gone. Thank you, Lord. It's gone. In that he saith a new covenant. That's what God said in Jeremiah 31, that he would bring a new covenant. And Paul's quoting it here in Hebrews 8. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first, the first covenant, the one with Moses. Oh, this is a play on words. This is one of our 20 one-word arguments. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. You can't have two things and call one of them new when they both have the same word of covenant. If the second covenant is called the new covenant, then the other one has to be the old covenant. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Remember what Jesus said? Now is and cometh. It cometh and it now is this transition from Old Testament to New Testament. Only New Testament worship clears the conscience for true worship. Do you realize that? The New Testament talks about how the Old Testament could never make your conscience clear. The New Testament does by telling us Jesus Christ finished the work of redemption on the cross of Calvary. All our sins are paid for if you're a believer and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Many so-called Christians, though, want to bring stuff back in from the Jews, which is where we differ from them on some of the things we have in a room like this in order to practice spirit worship. They have this. We just sing. Because singing is of the Spirit. This thing here, this percussion set, drum set back here, this, these amplifiers, these things don't do anything with the Spirit. They're not part of the Spirit. So what, those two songs we just sang, we were practicing music the New Testament way based on John chapter 4, let alone the other verses that we use to show that New Testament music must be singing. Right. Because the melody, what does it say in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, the melody comes from the heart. With grace in your hearts, we sing, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And those beautiful words that we sang a few minutes ago convey to each other the truth of the gospel. This thing can't convey anything except a bunch of noise to make you twitch. They have pictures like this. Some of us grew up with pictures like this. It's an external thing for these. has nothing to do with the Spirit, let alone the other ten corruptions of what Jesus looked like and where the, the source of that particular picture. Now this picture here is Benedict, whatever he was, 18. I want you to notice all the, uh, the incense because he's swinging his censer here and he's putting incense in his church. Where'd that come from? Old Testament. Did the Old Testament have a censer? Did it have incense? Yes. Old Testament. Ears, eyes, nose, mouth, showbread, taste, eat. What about their incense? Oh, is that smoke and strobes? Okay, I was just confused. Why? Why? Did the apostles ever do anything like that? Could the apostle Paul have gone into the local devil-worshipping, pagan, idolatrous shop and bought himself a little censer? Could he have borrowed one from Jerusalem and swung incense around? Yes, but they didn't do it because religion changed. Oh, look at this thing. What is stained glass up here for with all these pictures of John pouring some water over Jesus' head and some dove coming down up there? And we've got all... This is a Baptist church. I know you can't believe it. I, I don't either. You can see all these candles. What do they have a candle for? Where'd the candles come from? Candles came from the Old Testament. There was a candelabra in the tabernacle. You know, what's this, what's this table up here for? What's it called, even in Baptist churches? An altar. An altar? An altar? 
in a Baptist church? What a mess. What's this colored thing? Oh, thank you. What's this? Another flag. All this junk. Paraphernalia. Where'd they get it from? Bible? What does it do for the Spirit? How does it relate to the Spirit of God? He wants spirit worship. Anybody recognize this building? Whoever goes to the Greenville Drive should. If you ever go downtown, Pendleton Street Baptist Church, they had this thing removed. They have sold their three acres there finally because that church shrunk down to a little tiny group that met down there. I went on a vacation a couple years ago. They sold their three acres and they've retained a little half acre plot over in a corner of Rhett Street. And they're going to take the copper off this thing and make something special. God don't care about copper. And what is, what is that big thing on top of churches for anyway? Because is God impressed by phallic symbols on church buildings? Here's that altar again. What in the world? You know, we have a table, but we put stuff on it, and it's all it's for. We never call it the altar, and we never invite people, sinners to come down to the altar and get saved. Right. And we've got these things. This Christian flag. Is God impressed with a Christian flag? What's this thing? Oh, the sign of a curse. Okay. A cross. Yes. We have a few more here. I'm so critical. Jesus said, you don't know what you're doing, woman. Right. Salvation is of the Jews. Because God revealed it to them, and only them, and God's revealed the truth to us, us with his Bible. Right. And he's gotten rid of all that outside stuff, so we have this little plain, simple building here, and we communicate truth to our spirits, and we communicate by our spirits to God. There's a Lutheran baptism. It's very sweet, but totally wrong. Oh, and this one, this one really hurts me. This is Prince William and Kate bringing in Prince George. But he's going to be a reformer, so he said this. You mean to tell me infant baptism is unbiblical, but infant dedication is? And that's what Baptist churches do, is they have infant dedications. Yes, that's him. <laughs> how do we worship? No, how do we worship? How should we worship? In spirit. No pictures, incense, candles, stained glass, steeples, altar, horns, flags, robes, piano, none. How do we worship? Praying, singing, preaching the word, communion. How do we worship? We pray with the spirit. We pray with the understanding. Right. Piano, lead guitar, bass guitar, percussion can't do that. We pray with the spirit and we pray with the understanding. We sing with the spirit. We sing with the understanding inside religion, spirit to spirit, intelligence to intelligence, understanding to understanding. We preach by the spirit to the born again spirits of regenerate men. There's a great deal communicated when we get together like there is right now. We're communicating the truth of God's word from my spirit to your spirit by the spirit sent down from God who is a spirit. Amen. How do we worship? We take communion with careful internal self-examination. Two things are required at the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves. Discern the Lord's body and blood in the elements. Right. So it's careful internal self-examination. We don't do it publicly. We do it privately ourselves and sober discernment of the Lord's body. How do we worship? With free consciences, inflamed hearts, informed minds. Amen. That's how we worship. We can do it anywhere. Buildings are only for comfort. Church liberty is broad, and God doesn't care how we order our services. We can sing in the first, middle, last, or all three. We could sit cross-legged on the floor. We don't need these pews. We could worship in a tent. We could go outside. We could be in a barn. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he does, there's nothing in the New Testament about it. Because all that there is in the New Testament about it is it's, it's from here. And it's based on this. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. We just covered that, and in truth. For those of you that know that the first pitch is thrown at 8.08, hold on. Let's aim for 8.07. I think game seven's tonight. 
of the World Series. The first pitch is at 8.08. I wouldn't want you to miss it. I did it, Charlie. I'll regret it all night. Okay, what does it mean to worship in truth? Let's go very fast. It is opposite man-made traditions like the Samaritans had. Jesus just condemned the Jewish form of worship because it was outward and physical by teaching spiritual, and now we condemn the Samaritans because they didn't have truth. It must be by revelation of, the, of knowledge from God. In order to be truth, God must reveal knowledge to us as to how he wants to be worshipped. And he has, perfectly. Amen. It rejects any religious tradition against Scripture. We don't care who comes up with it or how many. If it disagrees with the Bible, we disagree with it. Because we're going to do what the Bible says. And life is very simple, and religion is very simple, and true worship is very simple. It esteems God's precepts and hates every false way. The verse we've known many times. It knows God is a God of doctrine and a God of details. It ignores persons, popularity, sincerity, cost, and countless other things. Worship in truth surely condemned the false man-made worship of the Samaritans. That's why Jesus said, Ye know not what ye worship. Woman, you Samaritans are messed up and have been messed up for 500 years. There hasn't been any worship going on here. Here's verses that remind us of how important truth is in our worship. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. We're supposed to identify false teachers which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Just stay with the truth. Hold fast the truth. Don't move away from it. Don't turn to the left hand or the right hand. Don't add to or take away. For they that are such... Those that leave apostolic doctrine serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies. They just want to follow themselves. They're their own master. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple, but not the hearts of the wise. Because right. a wise man knows that a truly God-fearing, Christ-loving person wants to submit to the Bible only, period. Galatians 1, Paul said, But though we, that includes him or the other apostles, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's what Paul would say about anybody, including himself, including an apostle, including Michael or Gabriel the angels, for preaching anything different than what he had taught them. And these are all the churches of the Galatians. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That's the seriousness now of the second word. The first word was spirit. Now it's truth. True worshipers worship in spirit. It's an internal religion, and they worship in truth. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. That's apostolic word. Stand fast and hold them. Hold the traditions and don't let them go. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. We do believe in tradition as long as we make clear it's apostolic tradition, so that it is a way of worship that came from the apostles, because Paul called it his tradition, their tradition as apostles. A man that is a heretic, that means holding any position contrary to the established position. That means holding a position contrary to the Bible. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject knowing that he that is such is subverted. He's been taken advantage of. He's in the snare of the devil. He's been subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself, coming and going with his mouth, having professed one thing, now professing another thing without any basis for it because there's no new revelation from God. We're supposed to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered. With truth so crucial for the worship of God, how are we sure we have the truth? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Paul's visiting another town called Berea. These were more noble. This is what noble people do. Than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. They want to be taught. They want God's minister to tell them the way it is. And then they search the scriptures daily, whether those things were so or not. And that's how you arrive at truth. That's how you know that our little church has the truth. You receive the word with all readiness of mind. You're thankful for it. You embrace it. You read it. You believe it. You memorize it. You review it. 
You search the scriptures to make sure that what's been said is really there. So that's why everything in this church is put in writing. Slides, outlines, and so forth. Prove all things is what a Christian is supposed to do and hold fast that which is good. What's good? God's word is good. If it's scriptural, hold it. To the law and to the testimony. That's the scriptures. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's what God said. If they don't like it my way, they don't know anything. This is how we know that we have the truth. We receive it with a ready mind. We search the scriptures. We prove all things. We hold fast whatever lines up with scripture. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That's our attitude. Thou through thy commandments, it's God's commandments that make us wiser than our enemies. It's we have more understanding than our teachers because of God's testimonies. We understand more than the ancients because we have and keep God's precepts. You know, we've used these verses many, many times. For me, as a minister, there's a pastoral epistle that says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God inspired it, so it's God's revelation. These words are not the words of the 40 writers. These words are the words of God, and we have made that commitment. We're Bible Christians, so we have this book, and it tells us, by God's inspiration, what we need to be profitable, everything we need for doctrine, to be reproved, to be corrected, and to be instructed in righteousness that pleases God. That the man of God, that's a minister with a Bible, dedicating himself to it, called by God to study it, may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's how we know. You have been taught this duty many times. Right. It's very basic to our lives as Christians. Remember some of these? Mm-hmm. What made the difference? How do we make a distinction? Christians are only one-third of the earth's population. Why aren't we Muslims? Why aren't we Hindus? Why aren't we? Because we trust this Bible as the revelation of God. We don't care what those Ganges-dipping, bathing Hindus think about anything. They don't have any evidence that there's any modicum of truth in their religion. We can prove by 700 confirmed, fulfilled prophecies that the Word of God is a supernatural book. But look at, all, look at those different religions, and Christianity is only one-third. When we look at Christianity, and I've presented these to you before, I hope you can remember when, you know, only a third are Protestants outside of the baby-sprinkling heretics of Rome and her daughters. The rest of this is Rome and her daughters. And most of this, forgive me. Then we get down to this one. When we look at the Protestants, here's Baptists. They're only one-eighth of the total of the one-third of the one-third. 1.6 billion Muslims on earth. Why aren't we Muslims? Do we have any reason for not being Muslims? Should we go kiss the Kaaba stone? How about 1.2 billion Catholics? Should we let Pope Frank pour water on Haley's head? How about, yes, he's my favorite. That's a Hindu priest on the Ganges River pouring out holy water. He is discreetly covered. It might be R, but it's not X. 600 million charismatic Pentecostals believing junk like this. I am a little Messiah walking on earth. 400 million Buddhists. Why aren't we Buddhists? They don't have to comb their hair in the morning. They can all sit and mumble together and get their rice in a bowl and a fish head. Ye worship, ye know not what, Jesus would say. Eight children of God. And he drowned the rest of the planet. Maybe eight children of God. All the Bible tells us is there were eight souls saved alive in the ark. Baptists worldwide, we're in this group right here. We're independent Baptists. Hampton Park, Southside. Uh, oh, Leon, what's we're up there in travel rest? Pardon me? Cool Springs. Yes, Galilean Baptists that I grew up in. Um, this, these are independent Baptists because this is the Southern Baptist Convention and this is the Baptist, World Baptist Alliance. Terrible. So we're, now, we're, now we're only one-seventh. This is only one-seventh of Baptists that are one-eighth 
of Protestants that are one-third of Christians, and Christians are only one-third of the world, so we have this. What's the probability of being an independent Baptist? One-third of the Earth's population, one-third of Earth's Christians, one-eighth of Earth's Protestants, one-seventh of Earth's Baptists. It's one out of 504 people, a very small remnant. Thank you, Lord, for making us independent Baptists so far. Oh, these numbers. I love numbers. Very small remnant. Some laws of small numbers. Only a small minority have ever held the truth. Jesus had 120 in an upper room. High esteem to men is an abomination to God. If men respect a church, it's abominable. That's why they don't respect ours. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep living the right way, preaching the right doctrine so they don't have respect for us. We're just a little group of nuts that are too old-fashioned for modern times. We are warned to avoid crowds or majorities. There's the Bible verses for these. A small minority by itself doesn't prove it. But it's the combination of our doctrine and our practice that is very rare. And thank you, Lord. God cares about details. We cannot add to, take away, go left, go right. Remember Nadab and Abihu with strange fire? Burned them up. They were the sons of Aaron, the highest ranking priests in Israel next to Aaron. David moved God's ark the wrong way in a new ox cart, celebrating with all his might, 30,000 princes of Israel. God didn't care. God killed the man that touched that ark. Ananias and Sapphira lied about their gift. They're dropped dead in the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5. The Corinthians were weak, sick, and dead for abusing the Lord's Supper. God cares about details. You know, we could go on and on, but can't. God cares about details. That's all we need to get from those slides. Errors we once held. Wow, Lord, are you serious? Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for showing us some truth so that we got rid of that and this and all these and all these by your grace. Because we went to your word, we proved all things, and we held fast that which is good. We searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Because worship has to be where God has led us in John chapter 4. Worship has to be in spirit and in truth. And he saved us from all these things. And all these things. All these things, these things, everything in this list are practiced by the other independent Baptist churches in Greenville County. These are examples of junk of conservative fundamental Baptists. I'm not picking on Presbyterians here, Methodists, Catholics, Hindus, just independent Baptists. Independent Baptist truth test. We're one out of 504. You have to meet 504 people on earth to meet an independent Baptist ordinarily, mathematically. 0.002%. Here's a Baptist truth test. Whenever you meet an independent Baptist, you should ask them these five questions. One, what Bible version do you use? Because if they say anything else, if you've been paying attention, you should be able to tear it to pieces. You should be able to show them their own internal contradictions if they don't have a Bible with authority. They have a man-written book that contradicts itself coming and going. Two, salvation is an unconditional gift of God based on God's elective choice before the world began. So we have salvation. First of all, it's revelation. Then we have salvation. Then we have prophecy. Historicism, we're historicists. We see Matthew 24 fulfilled, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, an important event. We're not futurists by sticking everything out in the future, like most of them in Greenville are. When I say most, I mean 98%. And we're not preterists, being the other 2% that everything was fulfilled already. When it comes to worship, we're a cappella singers, congregational singing without instruments. So that's church practice. You know, ecclesiology, part of their church, and how they worship corporately together. This is eschatology up here, their prophecy. This is ecclesiology. And then we have liberty. Liberty for alcohol, tobacco, birth control, school, and so forth. So there's five little tests to ask this one person that you met after interviewing 504. You met an independent Baptist, and you ask them these five questions to see if they can pass any of them. 
Here's a few enemies of truth. Tradition. Well, it's just the way my parents did it. Grandma took me to this church. Who cares? We only want one tradition. The tradition found right here. Very quickly, popularity doesn't prove a thing, except that it's wrong. Trends. There is no trend. The the faith was once delivered to the saints 2,000 years ago. Results don't prove anything. Results don't prove truth. You're forgetting about fool's gold. You're forgetting about the prosperity of fools from Proverbs chapter 1, among other places. The cost, I just can't do it. No, we're willing to pay anything to follow the truth. You're lazy to search the scriptures. You don't want to do it the Berean way. Friends, your friends influence you. Peer pressure. Teachers, false teachers that you listen to. Sincerity doesn't prove anything. The uh, priests and nuns of Rome are as sincere as anybody can be. They give up marriage to serve the church. They, were, they took care of me at Madonna University. I appreciated them. Business. Business takes us away. Remember, I have to go to my farm, Matthew chapter 22. And made, they made light of it. They made light of the gospel. Feelings. Another Jesus. Family. Inputs. You let inputs come in and crowd out spiritual zeal for the things of God. And so you've, you've committed Harry Carey spiritually toward truth by letting too many other inputs in. The only input we want is God's word. Amen. This is perfect. It's pure. This will feed your soul. Science, in quotation marks. Science falsely so-called, as Paul would label it. Persecution, that's, that's the seed sown in Matthew 13. Judgment by God, that's an enemy of truth. God will judge you and take away your understanding. Pleasure, I want to have fun in life instead of pursuing the truth. Carelessness, these are things that are enemies of truth. Truth reminder number one. Revelation from God is crucial, and it's only found in the Bible, nowhere else. There is no revelation anywhere else. Truth number, reminder number two, it's a gift from God to have something revealed to you from his word. He owes it to no one, and he gives it to a few. Remember it. Believe that. Humble yourself before it. Number three, it's very rare to have truth since man has no innate ability or desire to find truth himself. He loves a lie. Number four, we can't add to or take away from it. Can't turn right or left from it. Five, we're in the perilous times when fewer love truth than ever before. So-called Christians, so-called churches, they don't care about truth. They want entertainment. They have fables. They follow their own agenda. They have their own mandate. They have their own uh, business plan. Number six, our church is the pillar and ground of the truth. If it's going to be a New Testament church, because 1 Timothy 3 says that we're supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth. That means we support the truth. So we preserve the truth, protect the truth, and promote the truth with all our might. Number seven, God promised heresies to identify his true sons from strange children. First Corinthians eleven nineteen. I don't have the verses down here. I hope you know them from past lessons. If, if this is number eight, truth reminder number eight, if you don't listen well, learn scripture, love truth, and lean away from yourself. Remember Proverbs 3, 5? How we started off tonight? The proverb for tomorrow? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. With all thine heart. Trust him. Trust what he said, and lean not. Don't even lean to your own understanding. If you don't listen well, learn scripture, love truth, and lean away from your thoughts, you'll fall. I'll fall. We'll fall as a church. Number nine, When you can't believe we're right, when you can't believe that our little church here could be right with the truth and so many around us wrong, just think about baptism. That takes out 95% of all Christians. They can't figure out the simplest doctrine of the New Testament. Think about the age of accountability to get the rest of the Baptists to baptize the right way. They say that the age of accountability is 12. That means a a child has no moral capacity for making a decision until they are 12 years of age, and therefore they are innocent, and if they die before 12, they're going to automatically go to heaven. But when will they let those little children get saved? Three. When will they baptize those little children? Five. We could do this with 100 points of doctrine and practice, because they don't have a clue. They're like the Samaritans. Ye know not what ye worship. They make up a doctrine called the age of accountability that isn't in the Bible or implied in the Bible. And then they illogically condemn themselves by talking into both sides of their mouths 
by saying it's 12, but then telling a child he's saved by a decision he makes at 3, though his moral decisions he makes at 10, 11, and 12 don't count against him. Number 10, the world, the devil, and all men hate truth, so it'll never be popular. So what Jesus told the woman of Samaria, never going to be popular. Number 11, truth by definition. Truth, by definition, must condemn all alternatives. That's why it's truth. The rest are false. The rest are lies. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right or truth, and I hate every false way. Truth, by definition, must condemn all alternatives, so we've got to get over any effeminate, any effeminacy that cannot criticize. We have to. Number 12, truth must be loved and obeyed, or God will take it away and blind us to it. So let's love it and obey it. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Stand with me. Father in heaven, we thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ prayed when he saw the publicans and the harlots believing his gospel, repenting, being baptized, and pressing into his kingdom, yet the seminary-trained leaders of that nation, whether Pharisees or Sadducees, whether Levites or scribes, whether lawyers or Herodians, rejected him. We thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that in our past there were times when we did not care about your word like we do tonight. But in your grace, you changed our hearts and our minds. You convicted us toward the truth. You showed us the truth. And thank you, Lord, for showing it to us. You could have sent us strong delusion as easily or more easily or more justifiably than anyone else. Thank you for your mercy. Continue to show us mercy. As Brother Zach already prayed this evening, Lord, what we do not see, show us. What we're not obeying, convict us. And we will follow thee more perfectly. Bless this simple study. Bless John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24 to everyone in this assembly that they will remember it, that they will embrace it, that they will be able to teach it, and that a few of them will apply themselves to be able to defend it. Have mercy upon us, Lord. We love the truth that you've shown us. We look for more. We will hold it fast until you send Jesus Christ for us. In Jesus' name, amen.